Oh, the book of Acts chapter 24 guests. This is a great place, a safe place to open up the Bible for the first time. If you are new to the Bible, you haven't read the Bible, and you didn't bring a Bible, all you got to do is open up a device and hit Acts 24. And if you put in the initials ESV, English Standard Version, that's the translation I'll be reading from, uh, you'll get it up there on your screen. Uh, you're going to want to read this for yourself. It's actually quite long text. It's a, it's a narrative. You want to catch it as it goes. I'll do all the rest, though. Book of Acts, chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. The translator heading reads, Paul before Felix at Caesarea. Paul before Felix at Caesarea. Now, as you find your place, we, uh, just as a comment, we, we return to our study of Acts nearing the end of the book now. We should be finished by Christmas. A few weeks ago, we left the Apostle Paul in a prison cell with Jesus appearing beside him in the middle of the night in that prison cell saying to Paul, take courage. And we launched off from there for a few weeks just considering how it is that, that Paul took courage. But Jesus said, take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, the apostle, if you have been following along in the book of Acts, is headed to Rome. He's headed to Rome. And if you recall where we left off in that last chapter, Jerusalem is in an uproar. Paul, Paul had been in Jerusalem, and it is in an uproar. There's riots going on. There was even an active conspiracy to murder Paul. The Roman military actually had to escort him out of Jerusalem, and now he is going to stand trial, stand trial for his life. And if you were a, you were a Christian in the first century, when this, the first people to read this book, who had, who had believed and, and then received this book written by Luke, if you were a Christian in the first century, what comes next? What we're about to read and following? <laughs> It would have been of supreme interest. Not unlike a big trial in the news today, hanging on every line. But a first century Christian would have read this chapter in the next on the edge of their seat. What did the attorney say during the trial? How did the Apostle Paul defend himself? What were the judge's rulings? Who won? Who won and why <laughs> this is probably the biggest question of all. Why did the Romans send Paul to Rome rather than just back to Jerusalem where the whole fight had begun in the first place? How did Paul end up on trial before, and here's who he's headed to see, Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus, who technically, if you don't know who that is, technically is the great, 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 nephew of Julius Caesar. You, you can't make this stuff up. It's in your Bible. <laughs> Look with me, Acts chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read into chapter 25. Follow along and then I'll pray. Luke writes, verse 1, chapter 24, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul, verse 2, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, 
In every way and everywhere, we accept this with gratitude. Verse 4, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city, verse 13. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day verse 22 but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way put them off saying when Lysias the tribune comes down I will decide your case then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs after some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was a who was Jewish and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment Felix was alarmed and said go away for the present when I get an opportunity I will summon you at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul so he sent for him often and conversed with him Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Chapter 25. 
Verse 1, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority come among, among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Verse 6, after he had stayed among them no more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that, that they could not prove. Paul argued his, in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. The very words of God Join me in a prayer for understanding, Father. Father, your book is like food. And this is like a meal, a banquet. I pray you would nourish us. Nourish our souls. Strengthen us this morning as we pause and rest in your Son. Teach us your ways. Teach us about your world teach us about the world and its engagement with us and in particular our minds and our hearts father show us your son peeking through the lines and paragraphs of this trial and these trials father i pray you'd fill me with your spirit that i might preach with power that you might change us. Do good and glorify your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Word of the day here, providence. Uh, the term providence, I don't know if you're familiar with this word, the term providence, our word of the day, we don't use it much anymore. If you Google, actually, if you Google the term, the word providence, you'll get a chart. You know how Google gives you that chart of its usage, the usage of the word. And then in this case, with providence, if you Google it, you'll get all the way back to the 1800s, a chart of its usage, and it just drops off the cliff. Nearly zero. 
by today's standards. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary, going all the way back to the 1700s, the the usage of this term providence has gone from a common, everyday part of our vocabulary, it was used all the time, to almost non-existent. Occurring in modern English, Oxford English Dictionary measures these things, it occurs in modern English 0.04 times per million words used. And that is so unfortunate. So unfortunate, especially among us. I'm bringing it back. Instead of providence, instead of providence, we regularly substitute another word, the term sovereignty. We use the term sovereignty and sovereign all the time, or, or sovereign, as, as in the name of our church, sovereign grace, which refers to a rich theological concept that we embrace wholeheartedly, but there is a difference. There is a difference between sovereignty, sovereign, and providence. The word sovereignty refers to God's power. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He's the King. God, this is what sovereign means, that that God is sovereign, has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. He's sovereign. He has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. He is altogether sovereign. And this includes his power to save. As in sovereign grace church, God saves those he wants to save. No if, ands, or buts. But, (laughs) but, providence, providence, the word providence takes the word sovereignty one step further. Oh, it's good. Providence takes the word sovereignty one step further. For if sovereignty is about power, think about this, if sovereignty is about power, providence is about purpose. Purpose, as in God's power being exercised with purpose. That's a good definition for for providence. The purposeful use of power. The purposeful use of power. Providence. A care for those he has created and as he has worked. You you see, it's one thing, listen, it's one thing to say that God is all-powerful and does does whatever he pleases, that he is in control, and that can be good news or that could be bad news depending on your view and what you understand about God, but it is another thing altogether to say that the all-powerful God has a goal. That he has a goal and that everything he does with his power, aligns with his goals, his purposes. The word providence captures the reality that God's exercise of his sovereignty, God's, listen, the word providence captures the reality that God's exercise of his sovereignty is purposeful. He he does it with a purpose. It's providential, his works. They're providential, and that therefore it would be proper to say, we can conclude, not only does God's power reach into every detail of your life, God's in control, he's sovereign over everything, you got nothing to worry about, he's sovereign, maybe, you don't, it depends on why, he, how, what he's doing with his sovereignty, but listen, 
Not only does God's power reach into every detail of your life, but because of the truth of providence, we say we take it one step further. Because of the truth of providence, and the word providence doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Neither does Trinity. All kinds of words aren't in the Bible. This is a understanding, a teaching of the Scriptures. This word captured by providence. Because of the truth of providence, divine providence, we can say, Everything in our life is working towards one goal. Everything in your life is working towards one goal. For we believe nothing is outside of his providence. Nothing's outside of his providence. Listen, as we as we take in this courtroom drama in Acts 24 and 25, we are reminded again that as has been the theme throughout the book of Acts, this story is the account of the ongoing works of the risen Christ. Every detail, every twist and turn, every win, every loss, every victory, an expression of not only God's sovereignty, but even sweeter, His providence. That everything is going according to plan. And his plans, we know, are good. The Apostle Paul, in these, this chapter, he, he's appearing to be fighting for his life. Yet if we read between the lines, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Paul's life is going just as planned. Going just as planned. And although we could sympathize, oh, we could sympathize. I know I would sympathize. I bet you you would sympathize as well with Paul. If Paul were to say, this should not be happening to me. I say it a thousand times a day, or I think it, or I mumble it, or whatever. It's going on in my, in my mind about me. And if Paul were to say at this point, somewhere in his defense, let's just be clear here. None of this should be happening to me. We would all agree. But listen, nothing could be further from the truth. And it's as true for Paul here in this trial, in these trials, as it is for you today in your wins and losses and trials. For we know the providence of God. We know the providence of God that teaches us that the sovereign one, the sovereign one is using his power, using his power, wielding his power purposefully for our good and ultimately the one goal, his glory for the believer, for the follower of Jesus. As our text this morning said, for those who belong to the way, you can say, as hard as it is sometimes to believe, and that's our prayer today, that he would help us in our unbelief, we can say, everything in my life is working towards one goal. Everything. And I'm sure you got something right now. You say, this should not be happening to me. Whatever that thing is, you can say, it's working towards one goal. Let me give you just, here are, here are I'm going to give you three intended effects, I think, from this text 
and the truth of God's providence. Intended effects, oh, there are so many, but just three that pop out of the pages right there. That, 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 the, that God's providence, divine providence, makes a difference in our life. Right? The intended effects of this truth that is being demonstrated here in Acts chapter 24 and 25, what, what difference does this make in our lives? This providence, this God's divine sovereign work in our lives that's purposeful providence. If we could observe it from our text this morning, perhaps one of the most challenging seasons in Paul's life, and we can't say moment unless by moment you mean two to three years, but one of the most challenging seasons in his life just three intended effects. I'll offer three. Number one. Number one, because, listen, because I know everything in my life is working towards one goal, and I'm preaching this to me, okay? This is me. If you catch anything out of here, good luck. Uh, because I know everything in my life is working towards one goal, providence, I can be weak. I can be we I can actually embrace my weakness. If you go back to to verse one, chapter twenty-four, I, I, I can I can embrace my weakness. I, verse one, imagine how vulnerable Paul was. How unsafe he must have felt. How exposed he was. Verses one and two, Luke writes. And after five days, and those were some crazy days, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And verse 2, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul. If you stop right there, this is the big time. This is the big show, okay? And the courtroom, it's stacked against Paul. In fact, this Tertullus is a hired gun. You can't find him anywhere else. He's a hired gun. He's an attorney. He's a, he's a lawyer. He's a, a prosecutor. A man whose one job in life was to crush the opposition in a courtroom. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. I have been, maybe once. It's been said, maybe once, maybe twice, whatever. I've been in this situation before I have. But let me tell you, it's not comfortable. This is not a comfortable situation for Paul. It's not relaxing. It's not therapeutic. It's downright frightening, scary, even if you didn't do anything wrong. And I never did anything wrong. No. <laughs> even if you didn't do anything wrong. Why? Because the, at that moment, Paul, but we, at that moment, you realize the outcome is no longer in your hands. You're not in control. They tell you not to talk unless they ask you to talk. And when you do talk, your attorney's going to tell you what to say. You're at the mercy of the court. And not everyone is even playing fair. Everyone is out to win. And this means for Paul, he could lose. It would appear he could lose. But if you get providence, 
The providence of God can strengthen us in those moments, those moments of weakness when we could lose, when we are not in a position of power and strength. Because whether we win or we lose, we know that everything is working towards one goal, God's goal. And so I can be treated unfairly and yet not despair, right? I can be used, mischaracterized. I can be abused. And I could, be, I could be the recipient of injustice. Injustice. And, and, and here's how it could play out. And oh, this could light a fire in our culture today. I can be the recipient of injustice, which is what's going on here, and yet not see myself as a victim. There's such a thing as a victim. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Bad things happen to us. <laughs> people hurt people, and we of all people should be compassionate and merciful and run to the hurting and the wounds and the suffering and the abused. God heals the brokenhearted. That's the promise. It's beautiful. God heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. We, we live to be an extension of His mercy, benevolent, warm-hearted, generous, and caring because He cares. But, but listen, if we're not careful... We may from time to time find ourselves saying, in my words, I say these often, and they're wrong. This should not be happening to me. Not right now. Get out of my way. (laughs) The line should be shorter. That guy should stay in his lane, whatever it is. When in reality, when in reality, often, I would say almost always, it's just the opposite. It's not happening to me. Everything is happening for me. Everything is happening for me. Listen, listen, let me just... We can, we can embrace our weakness. This is, this, is why, this is why it's so... Dis- this is what's so destructive about what, what some, some have called today like a cult of victimhood. Again, a, a victimhood mentality that denies... Listen, it denies the hidden hand of God that's working everything in your life towards his one goal. Again, I'm not making light of suffering, especially suffering that comes from, from, at the hands of another person who is a sinner and will be accountable for his or her sins against you. But again, the truth is that the purpose, that there is purpose behind God's sovereignty in your life. It's not willy-nilly. It's not just that he is in control of all the details but that every detail is designed by the Sovereign One to work towards your good for His glory. This so-called cult of victimhood teaches us that we are to see our lives through a perspective that things are constantly happening to us. Listen, this is important because we're hearing this all the time. This so-called cult of victimhood teaches us that we are to see ourselves, to define ourselves through a perspective that, that things are just constantly happening to me, to us. And that it, most of them are negative. 
surprise, surprise. <laughs> I'm only aware. I, I'm, I'm learning from the things that hurt me and that, I, that find discomfort. That most of everything that's happening to us all the time is negative, beyond my control, right? And because of this, I deserve sympathy. Because I deserve better. <laughs> As the cult of, per, of, cult of personality, <laughs> the cult of victimhood would conclude because I deserve sympathy. Worship me. And my victim personality. But God's providence, God's providence speaks, speaks a different word and a different understanding and evaluation of what's happening. Not to me, but for me would often say, I don't fit into the category of being oppressed. doesn't define me. At the bottom of all, we need not endlessly fight to protect ourselves so we can embrace our weakness or strive for the upper hand. Strive to position ourselves in a place of strength as if somehow we can maintain and retain control of all that's going on around us so that we can, in the end, persevere and triumph. Listen, do you find yourself, do you find yourself avoiding these kinds of situations in your life where the outcome is not in your hands? I do. Where it seems hopeless or meaningless because no matter, no matter how hard you try, how hard you try, how hard you think about it, how you come up with a thousand ways to get out of it and to protect yourself from it and to buy whatever insurance policy you need and to make contact with all the people that need to be made contact with so that no one misunderstands what's going on here. And try to find yourself avoiding situations for no matter how how hard you try, it still may end up badly for you. Like take, for instance, visiting family at Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, here's your message for Thanksgiving weekend 2023. Everything is happening for you. It's all for you, not fundamentally to you. And that's why Paul can write to the Corinthians you know, just around this time. If I must boast, I boast of the things that show my weaknesses. For the sake of Christ, Paul writes then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, we all wish we were always in control of everything <laughs> because a thousand times a day we feel like saying i feel like saying this should not be happening to me but oh i love this is i love how ray orland jr this is what he wrote once about this i love this is about weakness and embracing our weakness when the power of christ rests on me in all my weaknesses when the power of christ rests on me in all of my weaknesses everything 
gets better. Everything gets better. We can be weak when we see the hidden hand of God in all the details of our lives. Second, I'll say, I'll say second of three of many possible intended effects of providence on your life. Number two, because I know everything in my life is working toward one, towards one goal, I can be, another word you might not use very often, meek. You can be weak and embrace your weakness. You can be meek, M-E-E-K, right? Look with me again. Chapter 24, verse 10. I wish I could go line by line, but it's not even necessary here. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Just one observation of his meekness here. I cheerfully make my defense. What a statement. A little detail thrown in by Luke just to frustrate me as I'm reading this text. It's Paul reporting Paul's countenance during the trial. He is cheerful. He's cheerful. How, how can Paul be cheerful at this point? Because let's be honest, cheerful is not one of the things I would have expected from you if you were in this chapter 24. His situation is far from being causing you to be cheerful. It's maddening. Listen, it's maddening if you just caught the details. Just listen to him defend himself. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days. Look, he's taking out this whole case before me. It just happened last week. It's not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd either in the temple or the synagogue or in the city. The whole thing is a ruse. A plot. A tactic to position Paul to what? To be murdered. To stop him. And Paul's just making his point that this is what's going on. Cheerfully. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of it all, it's not as if Paul tried to make this happen. Engineered this this way. Nothing Paul has done to this point to, (laughs) to avoid going to court has worked. Verse 17, I came bring, to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Remember, he had collected an offering for the Jerusalem church that was suffering. He brought money. Hmm, later they're going to ask for it, aren't they? Verse 18, they found me what? Purified. <laughs> Purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Verse 19, my accusers aren't even here to accuse me. They didn't even show up on the day of the court. You, you had to bring in a hired gun named Tertullus. Verse 21, if I am guilty of anything, Paul's saying, it is simply that I pointed out the obvious. I said the quiet part out loud. This isn't about anything that they're charging me with that you're hearing about today. It's about my belief in the resurrection of the dead. That's it. Let me tell you cheerfully. It's maddening. It's maddening. Paul was was ready to do it again. To give an answer to the hope that he had in Jesus. He was heeding the words of the Savior. Meek. Willing to take whatever needed to be taken. Heeding the words of the Savior, knowing that what he is doing, 
of all the dangerous things Paul could be doing, this was probably the most. Luke, Luke records Jesus' own words. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, he doesn't say, take the fifth and shut up. <laughs> no. He says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. But you and I know what would have been easier to say. Anything or nothing. Anything else or nothing. He knew. Paul knew that, it, that this was what got his Savior crucified in the first place. There is a parallel running here. Paul knew, but yet he didn't stop. He kept preaching knowing it would be costly, so much so that we have this little amusing dynamic. It's, it's going on even in the text in verses 22 and following where Felix the governor, right, and his wife, who's Jewish, kept inviting Paul to come to speaking, speak to them, right? Hoping Paul would bribe him, right? Because he came with a big offering. That's what he heard, right? When in fact, what does Paul do instead? Instead of playing to the crowd, what does Paul do? Verse 25, if you look, it says, and as he reasoned about, oh no, Paul, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And as is just kind of humorous, Felix was alarmed. <laughs> Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. <laughs> Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And that's what's humorous. It just keeps going around. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. <laughs> and you can imagine over and over again, he became alarmed as Paul spoke. Paul was being used, he was being manipulated. You ever used and manipulated? Yeah, I'm sure you have been. He's been taken advantage of. And yet he responds cheerfully as if his heart and soul is not troubled. Persevering in his attempts to proclaim the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, even to the highest chambers of the Roman Empire. Nothing's going to dissuade him even though it may cost him everything. And why is this possible? Because he was meek. Meekness, listen, meek, meekness doesn't mean you don't say anything or do anything. Listen, here's my favorite explanation on meekness. It comes from John Piper. I read it years ago, and oh, I just love it. Here it is. He says, meekness begins when we put our trust in God. This is what meekness is, and you, you, if you get providence, you can be meek. Meekness begins when we put our trust in God. Then because we trust Him, we commit our ways to Him. We roll into Him our anxieties and then wait. We trust in the Lord's timing. Paul's taking courage. Just rolling his anxieties into the Lord. Trusting His timing and His power and His grace to work, out, work things out in the best way for His glory and for our good. Piper writes, we don't give way to quick and fretful anger because we can be meek, but instead we give place to wrath and hand our cause over to God and let Him, the Lord, 
vindicate us if he chooses. He writes, in this quiet confidence, this is meekness, in this quiet confidence we are slow to speak and quick to listen. We become reasonable. This is what James describes meekness. We become reasonable and open to correction. James calls this the meekness of wisdom. The quietness and openness and vulnerability, and there's what you can describe, even as Paul makes his defense cheerfully. The quietness and openness and vulnerability, and this would be my prayer for us as well, as, as we grasp and believe in God's providence that everything in my life is working towards one goal, I can be meek. This quietness and openness and vulnerability, the vulnerability of meekness is very beautiful, We'd all nod our heads and say, yes, that's, that's a very beautiful thing and very painful. Piper, it goes against all that we are by our sinful nature. It requires supernatural help. <laughs> and I'd add, it's all centered on that one promise built into the definition of providence. Blessed are the meek. Here's the goal. For they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> Meekness is the ability to observe, absorb all kinds of wrongs and injustices and to take on risks and offenses and losses and suffering, knowing that the end, being quiet and open and vulnerable, knowing in the end, nobody can take away from you what you already have been given. Already but not yet. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. What does meekness look like for you? Hmm. What does meekness look like in your life? Especially as you consider everything in your life by God's providence is working towards one goal. If meekness is not present and would not describe your life, maybe it's because you don't fully grasp or even just a little bit grasp that God is working all things for that one purpose. And so you got to fight. you got to hold on. You can't lose ground, not even an inch. you got to defend. you got to speak up. You can't be wronged. Because you don't realize you already have everything. What a... What a crazy statement. You can't make this one up either. Jesus' promise for the meek, those that lie vulnerable, quiet, and open, you will inherit what? The earth. You will reign with him. United to Christ in his reign over all of creation. We can be meek when we get providence. Last very briefly, intended effect of providence on your life. If I could offer just one more, number three, because I know everything in my life is working towards one goal, I can be patient. This might be the hardest one for me personally. I can be patient. Look down at verse 27 one more time. It's this one. Luke slips it in and... <laughs> You should drop your Bible when you're reading. Just like, oh, and I saw some of you when I read it. I looked up, and some of you were like, oh, <laughs> ooh. Here it is, verse 27. 
when two years had elapsed. <laughs> Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Oh, dear. Jesus had just invited him, or Jesus had just stood beside him in his prison cell in Jerusalem and had told him, hey, great job, Paul. Love what you've been doing here in Jerusalem. Next up, Rome, <laughs> right? Maybe it wasn't that exciting at the time. It would be exciting now if you, you know, ta-da, everybody gets a trip to Rome. <laughs> Two years later, making frequent trips to see Felix to try to get extorted for the offering he had collected for the church. <laughs> He's sitting in that prison cell, undeterred. No demanding. Trial get moved up. Get out of my way. I'm headed for Rome. Because, but because, because Paul knew that everything in his life was working towards one goal, he could wait. He could wait because God is sovereign and can't be thwarted. There has no rival. He can wait until God works every detail in his life out to achieve his purposes. When two years had elapsed, Paul's headed to Rome. And as long as it takes, he will survive. As long as it takes, he will persist. As long as it takes, we will be faithful. We can accept delays. We can persevere even in our waiting. We can bear under the pressure of ticking minutes and hours and weeks and months and years. We can weather trials for whole seasons of our life and not just that one intense moment and just knock me out and I'll make it come back on the other side and it'll be great. We can, we can be patient because nothing, nothing can thwart the providence of God. It couldn't be further from the truth for Paul to say this should not be happening to me for, and we're about to see it. Oh, and it's just glorious. Next week, we're going to watch Paul, Paul is going to get a ticket to Rome. Instead of back to Jerusalem where he would have been strung up on a tree as well and executed. Instead, the very things where he's waiting in a prison cell, just waiting it out. Meekness. Just absorbing all the injustice. Weakness. Not having to defend himself. Being confident and patient. And you might even say comforted. Knowing that in his weakness he's strong. We can watch as Jesus ushers along in every detail of Paul's life, as he does ours as well, to ensure, and that's where hindsight's 2020, that all of this would work towards that one goal. Mm. God's powerful, He's sovereign, and even in the circumstances, that appear to be prevailing against us 
(laughs) big or small, we can trust him in every detail, even the one that you seem shouldn't be happening to you. God still reigns supreme. Would you pray with me and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. And, and, and for all the brothers and sisters that you worked in their lives to preserve this account for us, though we're not as interested in the details and we already know the outcome, the lesson is clear that you are a good, sovereign Lord. And all things are working for our good and for your glory. We have nothing to fear, nothing to lose. We can trust you and rest in you, in your divine providence, we pray. Amen.